Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-105, the Screaming Trees Other Worlds EP. It's our first Screaming Trees, Brent, and we've got a special guest. Yeah, Gary Lee Connors on the podcast today. Yeah, great guy. Very cool to have him on uh, because we we mentioned this either last episode or an episode before, but Mark Lanigan's got a book coming out and we're going to get more into Screaming Trees throughout the episodes. We'll talk a bit about that during History Lesson Part 1, but what a great way to start off our exploration of the Screaming Trees. I'm a big fan, but I will admit that it really was the Sweet Oblivion record that got me right at the right time in the early 90s as a as a young kid and I had to go back in time into the SST records so it's cool to start at the start yeah for sure it is hit me with some spiels Ryan all right I got two spiels for you what the first one is a watt update okay so I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, we got a couple more Watt releases in 2019, and now I have received in the mail what I believe will be the last Watt release of 2019 for me, and that is the debut album by Fitted called First Fits. Hmm. That one arrived, and it's Mike Watt, of course, as well as Bob Lee from The Freaks, and then also Graham Lewis and Matthew Sims from Wire. What do you mean, the freaks? Bob Lee from this band called the Freaks. I don't know much about the Freaks. Hmm. I wonder if it's the Freaks, whose record I have, which is awesome. If it is this band, the Freaks, I'm super interested in it because I bought this record on a whim because I I like this label and the band looks super cool. It's on this it's on this label Resonance that was like a garage label in like the '80s. Has bands like the Head, Headless Horsemen and stuff on it. But the band on the back, they look like Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction or something like that. Like a Grebo band. Brant, I feel like I'm going to like really disappoint you here Damn because it. it's it's the Freaks, F-R-E-E-K-S. And that is F-R-E-A-K-S, I believe, right? God damn it. Sorry, man. Different Freaks. Too bad. I was getting excited yeah. there. Well... This uh, first Fitz record, it's interesting. I just got it today. I've only spun it once really quick, like start to finish right before the show. Honestly, didn't get really much chance to sink in. It's um, it's different, though, than like the Wish Granters and a lot of the other uh, Watt stuff this year, which is good. It's different. It doesn't sound like Wire. It, okay. I don't know. It, it's a very diverse record, I guess I would say, on a first listen. It definitely requires more listens, but I thought I would. I was happy I could squeeze it in here uh, right before the end of the year. You're right down to the wire. Literally. Pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Stole I'm going to listen to this Freaks record, In Sense Around. That's the name of the record. Ah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, gonna to leave this one out. The album cover looks good. Um, anyways, that's my first spiel. Fitted. New album by Fitted. Check it out. Kind of neat. Kind of weird. Um, only had one listen. The next thing I wanted to mention is there's a new super group out there that I am super excited about. And they're called Human Impact Brand. Have you heard about them? No. So Human Impact are members of Cop Shoot Cop. Ooh. On- Unsane and Swans. Oh, wow. Noise rock royalty here. Yeah. 
It's uh, it's coming out in March on Ipecac Records, and it was recorded at BC Studios by Martin BC as well, Brant. Hmm. It's not what's his name from Cop Shoot Cop, the same guy that was in Firewater. I think you're thinking of Todd A. That's Brent. the dude, yeah. Yeah, no, so the members of Cop Shoot Cop, I believe, are Phil Polio and Jim Coleman. Okay. On drums and electronics, respectively. And then Chris Spencer on guitar and vocals from Unseen, and Chris Pravdika on bass from Swans. Anyways, they're, they are streaming one song on uh, the web called November, and I really like it. I can't wait for this record. I bet you it's going to be killer. Human Impact coming in March. All right. Good spiels. Yeah, that's all I got. Okay. Um, I was doing some research for this podcast, and I came across a blog post somewhere about that uh, Dr. Janet yeah. single that we talked about, I think, on the Dos Domin episode. Yeah. Maybe. Because of uh, Lyle Heisen being in the band, Dr. Janet. I didn't know this. I don't think I knew this when, when we talked about it. But the label that it was on, Ringer's Lactate, which I looked up their discogs. They seem to be like their most notable release was the debut full length from uh, that band Velvet Crush. Do you know them? Uh, I know the name. I don't know the band. I think kind of a power pop thing. Okay. Uh, but that label was... This I found this in this blog post. It was owned by Brian Long. Oh, cool. Yeah, SST radio promo dude who we interview on the Dust Dom and Jupiter Eye episode. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Didn't know that at the time, but cool coincidence. Yeah, Gary Lee's on Do Dr. Janet, as is Lyle, um, Ira Kaplan, yep. and uh, Matt Sweeney as well. Yeah. From uh, like Chavez and uh, stuff like that. Cool. Okay, I have a few listener recommends. These are recommends that were sent in by listeners. Checked them both out and I liked them both. Are they just for you or also for me? No, these are for you too. You'll like both of these bands. Okay, do it. Okay, I'm probably going to um, pronounce this wrong, but Jeff Shrek from the Ergs. Yes. Friend of the pod. He's done some stuff for our blog. The Ergs just played a huge comeback. Sure. I shouldn't say a comeback show, reunion show. It looked really awesome from the pictures I saw online. Uh, he recommended, this was right after our No Age episode, I believe. He recommended this band, Noxagat, N-O-X-A-G-T. They're a Norwegian noise rock trio. Uh, they have a whole bunch of albums, mainly on this record label, Load Records. Do you know, do you know Load Records, Ryan? I don't. You should check them out. There's probably stuff on there you'd like. They they packed it in around 2017, but they had like an insane roster of like avant-garde noise bands. And this is really good too. There's a whole bunch of albums by them. I can't remember which one I checked out, but I really liked it. And then uh, another listener, Jordan Scambo Schwartz, who you can hear an interview with on our Annihilate This Week, I think it is, episode. Is that yep. the one we... we we interviewed Scambo. I can't remember. Well, he recommended a band called Black Midi. Have you heard of them? That band I've heard of, but I've never checked them out. I I'm just have seen them in passing in articles, I think. Yeah. So they're a London-based rock band, and they released, I think, their debut, this album, 
Schlagenheim is the name of the album. Speaking of Mike Patton, I kind of thought they sounded like uh, Mike Patton fronting that band Terra Milos. That was my first impression when I listened to them. No way. Yeah, they're kind of like an experimental rock band. The album's on Rough Trade. It's good. You should check it out. These sound like two good recommends. Listener supported. Love that. Ryan, do you want to get into the Screaming Trees record? Yeah, it's time to go to the other worlds. History lesson, part one. So Brent, we've got Gary Lee on the show, and he does a good job at the history lesson. We're also going to get four more uh, shows with the Screaming Trees. We're Mm going to get them on SST 132, the Even If and Especially When record. SST-188, the Invisible Lantern record, one of my faves, SST-248, Buzz Factory, and also on SST-260, we're going to get the Screaming Trees Anthology, which has uh, songs from all of these releases. So I was thinking we could kind of do a very high-level kind of intro to the band, and then I wanted to... I wanted to maybe talk about some of the other bands that these guys have been in, too. We talked about Dr. Janet. Gary Lee mentioned some of the other projects that he has done, but everyone else in Screaming Trees have done a ton of other types of side projects and records that I thought were kind of a good way, after a quick history lesson, that we could get into them. Does that make sense? That sounds awesome. Okay, so... We'll we'll all hear all this again from Gary Lee shortly, but just quickly. Um, the Trees started in Ellensburg, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle, in uh, 85. Mark Lanigan on vocals, Gary Lee on guitar, his brother Van on bass, and Mark Pickerel on drums. Kind of a, pro like, not a proto-grunge, but definitely psych, and they were definitely one of the they weren't like the one of the top four grunge bands, but I always looked at Screaming Trees as one of like the real grunge bands, you know, kind of like Mudhoney almost is kind of how I thought of them. And I, it's part partly because of the Screaming Trees and the one of the first times I ever saw them or heard them, which was in that documentary Hype. I don't know if you remember that one, Brand. I do, yeah. I think it's it's Van Connor cracks a joke about the Screaming Trees being a ton of band or something like that, and it always stuck with me. Yeah, he says, yeah. Um, he says, yeah, they always talk about how there's, there's tons of bands from Seattle or something. Yeah, tons of bands in Seattle, and he's like, we're a ton of band. And the other thing that always stuck out for me with respect to Screaming Trees in that documentary is talking, it was Van again, talking about how, you know, they were nerds, damn it, and couldn't Right, talk. right, yeah. Yeah. Couldn't talk, couldn't talk to girls and stuff like that. It was right about this time that the singles soundtrack came out and their, their huge hit, probably their biggest hit, right? Nearly Lost You came out. That's how I got into Screaming Trees right around the time I saw the hype documentary. And I was like, oh, that makes sense to me that I can relate to. I got to check that out. And I got that album, um, Sweet Oblivion, which was yeah, their, awesome. It's awesome. It's their sec- second major label record, though. After they were done on SST, they first released the Uncle Anesthesia record in 91, then Sweet Oblivion. And then there was like a four-year break 
until the Dust album came out in 96. And then we've mentioned this other album, I guess their final recordings, the Last Words album that came out in 2011. We've mentioned that before, which is also a bunch of great songs. And all that stuff's good. Yeah. They were to grunge like what Exodus was to the big four of thrash metal. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, I'll have to take your I'll have to take your word for that. <laughs> now we we mentioned you know their SST records, and again I'm super pumped that we get to go through the Screaming Trees four more times. We get to go through more of their history throughout uh, the podcast. Get to follow their sound as it evolves, and it does. You mentioned in the interview about how much they sound like the Screaming Trees on this Other Worlds EP, though, like they sound pretty well developed by their sound one thing though like on this record mark lanigan's voice is not quite what it came to be he sings almost in a bit of a higher register his his baritone hasn't really come out yet but i think that uh again you cover that off pretty good with gary lee in uh in the interview but let's talk about some of the other stuff that these guys have done mark lanigan the singer of course has had a ton of of solo records. And now in the interview, Brent, you talk with Gary Lee about like their, their solo albums, I guess in the early nineties that were going to kind of be like kiss solo albums. And three of them did it essentially. Mark Pickerel did not. So Gary Lee did the purple outside. I think the Mark Lanigan one would have been, um, the winding street on sub pop in 90. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. So The Winding Street is a great record by Mark. It is good. And his follow-up, Whiskey for the Holy Ghost, is uh, also really good. That's the one you hear mentioned the most, I would say. Yeah, I think so too. Now, Mark has put out uh, about two dozen solo albums, though, if you count like all of the collaborations and side projects, including... He did one this year too. Yeah, maybe even two this year. At least one. He also has, or it's a while back, but he had the Gutter Twins project with Greg right. from Afghan Wigs. That's a great record. I, actually, yeah. I saw the Gutter Twins live, and it was that's the only time I've ever seen a Screaming Tree live, except I think I saw Mark Pickerel drum for Nico Case once. Oh, I really? Think, I think. That sounds right, actually, now that you say that. The Gutter Twins, though, great record. I saw them live. It was it was killer. Like, Lanigan was in full Lanigan at that show, like just leaning into the mic and super deep. It was great. Uh, Mark is also on some Queens of the Stone Age records as well. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. I think he's on those desert sessions. Yep. Compilations, and, too, or whatever you call them. Yeah. The Project I, Desert Sessions. Yeah. There's a new Desert Sessions record out this year, too. Yeah, that, right. that Josh from Queens puts out. I like Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, I actually like Queens better than Caius. That'll that's probably sacrilege to you though to say that. It is to me, yeah. But <laughs> I, can, I, I I appreciate Queens of the Stone Age, but I've never really gotten into them to be honest. The two records that um, stand out for me though with Mark on them are uh, the uh, the R rated R record and Songs for the Deaf. There's a song on rated R called In the Fade that Mark sings and it's, it's a pretty damn good song. Um, and then as we mentioned a couple episodes 
go and at the top of this show mark has got a book coming out next year and i'm really pumped to read that one i bet you that'll be great yeah now how about van i think his solo album was the solomon grundy album on new alliance in 1990 does that sound right yep that's a good one yeah and there's a single too as well and uh did you ever hear any of van's later stuff valis or valis uh, I've checked it out before. Yeah. It's on Strange Earth Records. That's, that's his label. Yeah. Yeah. That that stuff's pretty good. Uh it's I would say though that it's not it's not as strong as the Sol I really like that Solomon Grundy record. I feel like that's yeah. a real hidden gem. I like it better than Purple Outside, to be honest. I, I'd say it's one of the top five albums probably on New Alliance for me. Yeah. It's a great record, that Solomon Grundy record. Yeah. Um Mark Pickrell, though, is in, um, when he left Screaming Trees and was replaced by Barrett Martin on drums, Mark Pickrell was in a band with Hiro Yamamoto from Soundgarden called Truly Brent. Yeah, right. And wasn't, um, wasn't somebody from Pearl Jam in that band? No. You might be thinking of Mad Season. No, I know Mad Season, but mm. I, th- I thought somebody from Pearl Jam was, was in Truly. So truly is Mark Pickerel, Hero, and then a guy named Robert Roth on guitar. Hmm. But uh, those records by Truly are hidden gems as well, too. Like they didn't get much. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe they got more publicity and well known than I think they did. They certainly didn't up here in Canada, anyways. Uh, I think after the fact, they kind of got a little bit of recognition. Recognition. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think that the the two first Truly records and the singles are they they're really really solid. I like them as kind of like psych shoegaze grunge type stuff. And uh, I always liked Hero, like the Hero era of Soundgarden as well too. I like all Soundgarden, but I like the mm-hmm. Hero era as well. So that's a very cool um, band to check out. Truly, and then Barrett. Brandt. he was in mad season right but, but also in endino's earthworm and skin yard yes yeah yes that mad season um whatever you call it deluxe edition or whatever that came out a few years ago of, of above has an awesome dvd in it oh yeah a, re- a really good pro shot performance of the band yeah I uh, I do like that Mad Season record a ton. Um, it's still, good. yeah, still, you know what? Like, you talk about the Big Four in grunge. You know, I'm not. I've never been a big fan of Pearl Jam, but um, Alice in Chains. Uh, I've never been a big fan of Nirvana either. But Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, for some reason, they they stuck with me, and I still like them. Well, the reason is because they're awesome. Yeah, Mad Season. A, a great kind of super group. But the thing that struck me, um, oh, I should also mention too that uh, the Mike Watt record, Ball Hugger Tugboat, Lanigan and Lee Connor are on Ball Hugger Tugboat as well. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that's a killer record as well. Van has a solo album that came out last year too that's really good under his own name, Coming Back Again. Okay, I didn't check that one out. Is that on it's on, yeah, it's on it's on his label, yeah. Okay, cool. But just just look at that. So 
we're going to get four Screaming Trees records on the podcast, but that's just a, a sample, a taste of some of the stuff that the members of the Screaming Trees have done. So very prolific, very solid output by these guys. So you know it's good stuff. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to say too much because we're kind of spoiling the interview a little bit here, but everyone needs to check out uh, Gary Lee's solo stuff because it's all awesome. And if you like his new newer stuff since the trees broke up. And if you, um, if you like the screaming trees, you'll, you'll like his, his stuff. I agree. It's good. It's good. I actually ordered that, uh, latest LP from Italy all the way. I micro micro dot gnome one. Uh, no. Oh, unicorn curry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was actually a crowdfund for the Gary Lee mentions that there was a crowdfund for it. I contributed to that. It didn't go. And then the dudes in Italy put it out and I jumped right on it. So, well, uh, if anybody's interested, their official Facebook page, Screaming Trees does a really good job of keeping up with kind of all the members activities. So it's a good, it's a good hub for all things Screaming Trees. So I don't know, Brent, with that, does it make sense to toss it over to the interview? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by Gary Lee Connor. Gary Lee, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. How's it going out there? Oh, it's going great, thanks. So we're talking today about the Screaming Trees EP, Other Worlds. But I'm wondering if you can, oh, yeah. if you can take us back to kind of the start mm-hmm. of the Screaming Trees. Did you guys all yeah, go to high school together? Well, sort of. I mean, I was a little older, so I was out of high school by the time we started the band. And Van and I guess Van and Mark Pickerel. I mean, Van must have just graduated. Mark Pickerel was probably junior or senior. He was a grade below. And then Lanigan probably was just out. too. That's where Van and Mark Pickerel met Lanigan in high school and kind of like in some party high school and just, you know, like early, or late teens, early 20s, uh, party because Lanigan Lanigan was he's like in between like I'm I'm like uh you know the oldest and then Lanigan's two years younger than me and Van's two more years younger than me and Pickerel's a year younger than so okay um we weren't quite all in high school at the same time together but close you know so right and first band for you well we me and Mark Pickerel and Van we had a couple of cover bands like one was called the first one was called him and those guys (laughs) <laughs> and the other one was called the Explosive Generation. Well, the Screaming Tree started in '85, mm-hmm. and I think the first band we had was about '82 or '3. And we spent two or three years. It's kind of like we played a couple of dances and a couple of shows around Ellensburg, and we just did covers, like all sorts of different stuff. You know, like '60s stuff, punk rock stuff, new wave, metal, kind of just like a whole gamut of like what you know stuff we liked and stuff that was on MTV at the time, just so we could play the dances and stuff. You know. We didn't really play very many. I mean, probably we played like 35 or six things total with that lineup. But anyway, yeah, so Van and Mark uh, Pickerel met Flanagan, like, and they kind of, you know, saw him every once in a while at parties or, you know, they'd seen him around school. I don't think they had classes together. But anyway, uh, Lanigan had graduated and Van and Mark were in high school and uh, they were like, uh, you know, hey, we should start a band together, like Van and Mark Pickerel and Mark Lanigan. And, at the time, like I guess Van and Mark Pickerel were kind of they were kind of sick of me for some reason. I don't know why. I guess I was like too controlling or something. And they were gonna start a band with Lanigan, like without me. Mm-hmm. But they had to come over and practice at our house in my room where we had, you know, um been practicing with the other band. 
so uh, my mom was like, you should look. We played with it. So I started playing bass because Van was playing guitar at the time. Right. He knew a lot of Black Flag covers. And that's all. At the, we first started in the summer of 85. Basically, we were playing several Black Flag covers that Van had been playing. Because he'd been playing with another band that was doing punk rock covers. Okay. And called that, what were they called? MDL. They were another Ellensburg band from the time. But so we played Black Rock covers, and I remember we played maybe like Cream and Jimi Hendrix songs, you know, kind of with Lanigan singing, and I was playing bass. So that lasted, you know, a few weeks. and kind of got... But then um, Mark Lanigan found out that I'd been recording some... I had just got a four-track cassette recorder a few months before, and I'd been recording some songs on my own. You know, some of the songs like, uh, what was it, I tell you, uh, From Other Worlds, like Now Your Nine is Next to Mine and uh, Other Worlds. Mm-hmm. Like I said, um, you know, five or six songs. And he was like, hey, we should do some of these with this band. You know, I was like, okay, why not? So I guess we must have played a little bit. But mostly what happened was I got Lanigan to sing on the demos. And that was kind of funny. Like I sat down, he sat across with me and was like, okay, sing these songs, and so we sang them. And we wrote, like, I think we must have wrote one song together. It's probably uh, in my mind. I think that's the one song that, at the time. Later on in the band, we didn't really sit down and write together, you know, especially after the first or second record. But, uh, you know, like, at that time, we still kind of, like, you know, sat down and wrote some stuff together, especially coming up, like, later, like, clairvoyance and stuff. Right. But, so we did that um, demo tape. Did these demos have drums on them? I can't, re- you know, I can't remember if, well, the, the demos that I had, that I had Mark sing on right. were uh, like drum machine. And okay. Stuff, you know, yeah. I can't remember if we made one with the band. We were always really lazy like that. We never made demos. Or That's like we just did, like give Mark Pickerel a tape of my demo with drum machine and say, learn the song and be at the <laughs> studio. And then we'd like, okay, now we're recording it. Right. I can't remember if the other world's demos had the band playing or if it was just me with mark singing you know um that's so long ago i can't remember but what happened after that is um i've been reading in spin magazine i read this article by this guy giza x yeah and it was like don't sit around and wait to get signed by some label do it yourself make your own record and also at the time it was the, the cassette revolution thing you know like with mm-hmm. k cassettes and a lot of all the bands instead of like sitting around waiting to have a record they're putting stuff out of cassette because you do it yourself so between those two things mark pickerel had been working at ace Records, the, the main record store in ellensburg and he'd seen um steve fisk who was a uh, producer and you know keyboard player and stuff uh was apparently living in the town and to us he was kind of famous because he had a single in ace Records. so it's like this guy is like a real guy he has a you know he has something he's done a record and um and he's apparently working at the studio that we didn't even know there was a studio in Ellensburg. We found out there was a studio. This guy, Sam Albright, had just started. Okay. He owned the studio and still worked there. And so we're like, oh, let's try to go down and record and stuff. You know, I just read this article. It's like, do it yourself. So um, so we went down there and talked to Steve. And they're like, okay, you know, we booked some time. and Like three days, I think, we recorded what ended up becoming Another World. It was originally a demo. They were going to put it on a cassette. The songs are on there. There was like one or two. I think we did a cover song from the Pebbles compilation. I like, uh, I can't remember which one it was. You rubbed me the wrong way. I can't remember who it was by. Hmm. But um, and that that's lost. I don't know where it happened to that. But it was recorded at the same time. 
might have been one other one, but basically the six songs that uh, ended up being the album later on in SST. Right. And we were like, okay, well, we got this done. And, uh, you know, Steve and Sam, the guys from the studio, they're like, hey, it's pretty cool. You know, maybe we should, like, you know, put it out. And we were like, okay, let's put out a cassette. And Steve helped us some. He knew Calvin Johnson from right. Olympia from K Cassettes. So, you know, um, we didn't do it on K, but he helped us uh, distri- distribute it a lot. So we just went and I can't remember where we got them duped. Got a bunch of cassettes duped. Uh, I think we just printed out. Co- uh, covers on do we I can't really have covers printed or we printed on a printer we probably had a printed because back then I don't think we had a color printer yeah I think we printed the labels stick on the cassettes on a printer and then got the actual covers printed you know I made a just I found some old picture weird picture in Life magazine that looks like maybe it's one of us no, I, I thought know. it was have, yeah. Have you ever seen <laughs> yeah I thought it was yeah. yeah yeah it looks like it is but it was actually a picture of some guy like uh they're like uh, what do you call it like uh, uh super collider like cloud tracks okay you know like when they smash atoms and like the, the atoms like make weird patterns like that i don't know how many people have seen the cassette for other world to cover so you know but if the, you can probably look it up yeah um online yeah. and i posted it before on the screaming trees facebook group so okay. um yeah but it's, it's red and black and it's got this guy that looks like could be one of us with kind of long hair <laughs> shadow of them right and so we did that got the cassettes done and steve fisk helped us like you know get some around to stores and stuff probably mostly in the northwest i don't know how where that tape ended up um so at the same time was uh the idea that we should do a record with uh velvetone which is the label that they had a couple of weird records they'd done before one was the twang babies or some weird comedy country thing i'm not quite sure and another guy um p.s o'neill he had a record on Galvaton. he was a guy from seattle who was around some recording down there at the same time we were so that you know at, at the time that was kind of the okay other world got the set done and now we're gonna do the record then we went on proceeded to record clairvoyance and like during the early part of 1986 in the meantime, we want to, I mean, you're basically talking about other worlds, right? So I'll can go on to when it actually came out on album. We uh, did the Clairvoyance record, did some little bit of touring in California, got signed to SST Records because of other worlds. That was what mm-hmm. got us signed, was because uh, we played uh, Los Angeles, a couple of shows down there, and Steve Fisk was uh, friends with uh, a guy named Ray Farrell, who later worked for... Uh, BGC Records and was like doing stuff with Sonic Youth. I think Nirvana a little bit too. Mm-hmm. But at the time he worked at SST and Steve Fisk knew him and he got a tape to him and probably an album of Clairvoyance too because that was out by that time. And um, after we'd done this tour of California, we knew somebody, you know, a couple of people from some labels would come. We, uh, we got, first we got a call from uh, Pink Dust Records. I think, was it Gerard Cosler? Is that who Pink Dust? I can't remember if that's the right name. That would be somebody else. Mm. But it was part of Restless. Okay, like, Gerard's like, Homestead, so. Yeah, that's Homestead. Who was that? I can't remember that. Yeah, I knew that was some indie record label. Man, it's been so long. I can't remember who the guy from Restless Records was. Hmm. But they also had Pink Dust and another label. I can't remember. Pink Dust was like the very first uh, Flaming Lips. It was on Pink Dust. Okay. Well, there's and Enigma, Land. of course. Yeah, it was part of Enigma, right. Yeah. It was part of Enigma. It was like an Enigma label. Right. Anyway, Pink Dust 
called us and was like, hey, you should sign. And we're like, oh, God, it's a real record label, you know. But then a few days later, maybe a couple of weeks later, this was like probably maybe January, February 1987, I guess, at this point. This was, you know, a whole, a little over a year after we'd done the Other World's Tape. Right. And we had clairvoyance out and we toured a little bit uh, on the West Coast. We got a call and we all worked down at the at, uh, New World Video. So we practiced in the back. It was a big room in the back. We got we started practicing back there, and we all worked there. It was like uh, my parents and I had started a couple of years earlier. Okay. And so we're all, you know, everyone works there. We listen to music, like because nobody ever comes in in the morning, hardly. <laughs> so uh, Mark Ladigan worked there. Mark Pickle worked there. Van worked there. I worked there. And that was kind of like our headquarters. So we got a call from none other than Greg Ginn from SST Records, and. He talked to Lanigan, and we're sitting there like, "What is Greg Ginn? What?" You know, and we're just like, you know, SST was like our dream label, and like all those great bands. That was like right when they were starting to really expand to get a lot of. I think Dinosaur Junior just probably been signed there, and uh, I mean, they didn't really have Sonic Youth. Like they had Husker Du, and they had you know Minutemen, Black Flag, and a lot of great, great bands, Neat Puppets, of course. Right. And uh, one of the bands we loved and we were listening to all the time, and. Uh, Again, kind of beating around the bush, not really saying, well, you want to sign to SST. And finally, Lanigan, I remember he just said, well, what, you want to sign it to your label? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, I really like, and he was going on about how much he liked Other Worlds. Mm-hmm. That was the, basically what got it signed was Other Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in retrospect, the album's very, you know, we hadn't even been together like a few weeks and hadn't even really played the songs hardly at all. And Lanigan, he hadn't really sung much at all before we started playing that summer. You know, I think he sung like one or two times, like with the, some other band at a party or something. Right. He didn't really know that he had a voice, really. I mean, if you listen to the difference between other worlds, way he sings, and even even the second record, you know, the first record, actual LP of Clairvoyance, you know, and if you go like later and like nowadays yeah. <laughs> like the same person so yeah. he definitely um, hadn't found his yeah. voice yet that early on for sure no, no not really you know definitely by by the time he even if especially when he was really starting to you know um realize that he could sing yeah so we got the call and it's like other worlds is what i really like so, like you know and he's like i want to put that out but you know we're, we're already working on it, even if especially when Mm-hmm. As a second record for Velvetone, but we're like, okay, we'll finish this record up, and you can do what you want, put out other worlds. And I guess it, and then it, it didn't come out till the following year because we get we put out um, in nineteen eighty seven, even if, and especially when, and then I'm not sure what time that came out in between that and Invisible Lantern, but it came out in eighty eight. Okay, actually, now Mark Pickerel made that cover. He like got some like old Christmas card and got a picture of me and put it on there and then some other pictures of the band. Uh, I was going to ask how we created it. Like, what are we gonna do for yeah, yeah. It was kind of interesting that he like, I, I don't know. It was funny looking cover, I guess. But, you know, it worked because it was sort of a first thing we'd done. And... Yeah. How did you feel about it coming out? I mean, you said it was you know, a couple weeks old only. Uh, it, yeah. You know, the band, the band is definitely the sound of the band is there. But it's definitely yeah. By the you know. by the time it came out, we might have thought it was a little dated. I mean, we're still at least the first year or two we were together. We're still playing songs from that live, you know. So, right. And I remember this was probably around during the time we were recording uh, 
invisible lantern, so it's probably sometime in 1988. We tried to record barriers. That's the other song. The barriers mm-hmm. um, from other worlds again, and we just you know we record the music and Mark just I don't know. I guess it was like he could sing too good or something. He just couldn't quite do it. I don't know. It was like, oh, it wasn't really working. So, you know, I think we, did, we didn't really do it to be on the next record or anything. But right. um, it was just kind of an experiment to see. Well, you know, that really sounds a lot different yeah. than uh, we do now. So even though it was, you know, we kept the kind of at least to some extent the uh, garage site vibe. That was all my doing mostly. That everyone else kind of wasn't really into that kind of stuff. <laughs> I was writing at least the basis of most of the songs, you know. Right. Um, it ended up being like that until at least, uh, you know, we started getting a little out of that by the time we got to, uh, well, change the song changes come, although the rest of the album's pretty psychedelic. But, uh, you know, by the time we got to be on Epic, we kind of had been kind of gotten a little bit more in that kind of classic rock direction, I guess. Well, it, it's really cool to listen to considering, you know, as you said, the band was two weeks old. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Mark didn't really, find, hadn't really found his voice yet. No. Listening to this, it's crazy how much even of like the future sound of the Seattle scene you can hear really? here on the album. Well, we were, I think, you know, Steve Fisk had a lot to do with this helping us. We'd never been in a studio before. We had no idea, you know, and he... You know, all sorts of tricks to do, and you know, we—I can't remember what kind of stuff. I mean, we put backwards guitar, you know, like yep. barriers. Um, you know, it was a small studio, equipment-wise. It was actually a nice, big room and comfortable lounge and everything. It only had it had an eight-track, uh, what was that, half-inch or quarter? It was half-inch eight-track, small board. You know, if you looked at it now, it would be like this little tiny thing. Right. <laughs> it's like, but uh, we did, you know, three and a half, three albums in the EP in there. Right. You know, we definitely stretched it to the limit. Was, was Steve we from Ellensburg? No, he's from, uh, well, I don't know where he was from originally, but he'd gone to college over in Olympia, Evergreen. A lot of people, you know, he knew a lot of people like Bruce Pavitt mm-hmm. and a lot of other people from Seattle area who'd gone to Evergreen. Okay. I remember he brought Bruce Pavitt over and met him. This was before Sub Pop. It was like, well, he was doing the Sub Pop compilations, and like, uh, but this was before the record company started. So it must have been like '88 or something. He brought Pavitt over to the video store and they met him. Didn't know what was going to later. How big was El- How big was Ellensburg? Oh, really small. Like yeah. uh, about at the time, it was about thirteen thousand. I think it's grown a little bit, and it, it was like. Uh, college the central washington university is there which is about half the town population the rest is like the rodeo and cows it was on a freeway so that helped a little bit it was like you know interstate 90 even take about two hours to get to seattle but on the other hand you got to go over snoqualmie pass so like half the year right on a bunch of snow right they got a really nice road by by the mid 80s the road going to seattle was really it was great like huge like it's kind of weird like half of it on goes along the mountains on one side oh after you get up to the pass and down in seattle the other half is just like oh, it must be like 10 mile long it's like a huge bridge going over the forest and i don't know what they've done to it since but i've you know, seen it for 20 years but it was pretty amazing at the time because it started out when we moved when i moved to allensburg like 68 like crummy little like sort of a four-lane road maybe a two-lane road going 
especially in the winter you didn't want to get close to it but later is it like a logging town a little bit there was some logging you you know Ellensburg's right in the it's like half of the it's a big valley the Kittitas Valley half of it's forest the other half's a desert you know right on the edge of the great the uh, basin there like where uh, Hanford is and stuff so it's right you know half desert half forest and, uh, you know, we didn't even think it was weird because, like, when we thought of the name Screaming Trees, we were just kind of like, okay, I think it, it kind of came to us because we were like, whoa, we're a bunch of freaks. We'll call ourselves Screaming Freaks. And that sounded kind of <laughs> like trees. So I, that's that, at least that's what I remember. I, I, there was no, you know, some people think, like, that because we're from the Northwest or some people think it's named after because Van told everyone this effect pedal, electroharmonic Screaming Trees, uh, treble booster i don't know why you want treble booster, but that's the <laughs> screaming tree effect pedal oh yeah you can see pictures of it online the screaming tree treble booster by electro harmonic so it's some 70s thing um so for some people think that but it was really just sort of like serendipitous because you know it seems like coming from the northwest screaming trees and logging and all that kind of stuff that right. makes sense so it, it actually ended up making a lot of sense <laughs> it was sort of like one of those things that's like yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Okay. How long did you guys stay there, like as a group? In Ellensburg, well, we kind of gradually got out of there. Um, we, let's see, till at least 88, everyone was living there. I think yeah. Lanigan was the first one to move over to Seattle. And then Pickerel, and then uh, we, Van and I didn't end up going over there until, well, first we moved over there when we were doing uh, uh, Uncle Asthesia, the first Epic album. Okay. And... Then we got an apartment and ended up having no money, so we moved back to Ellensburg. And then uh, by the time when we were doing uh, Sweet Oblivion, so finally everyone moved over and didn't move back to Ellensburg. So. Right. When you were living there still, like even before the Screaming mm-hmm. Trees, where did did you go anywhere to see bands play? Like, I mean, touring? touring yeah, bands? yeah. That's the thing with the. Uh, yeah, we used to go over to Seattle. And at the time the scrimmage started, we had no idea there was any kind of, you know, we were listening to indie music and punk rock and stuff, but we didn't know even any of the bands would play in Seattle or that there was anything going on in Seattle at all. Yeah. You know, all we saw was a few cover bands, maybe a few of them from Seattle come over. And uh, the only band I ever remember, well, there was, they were kind of a metal band. Rail was a band from Seattle that kind of did originals. In fact, they won... Was it the what was the MTV some MTV contest where they supposedly got a record stuff? Mm. They were kind of famous in the Northwest. What are they called? They the rail, metal, rail like a r- railroad, right? Like rail. Yeah, yeah. I, there was a big controversy because uh, supposedly David Lee Roth stole the you know the furry type boots he used to wear a lot from the singer, <laughs> or at least the idea for them. I don't know because I think they opened for Van Halen one time or something. Okay. And then there was another band called The Heat or The Heaters. They they were kind of a new wave-ish punk rock thing. I remember they played Nelson one time. But, you know, I didn't even, we didn't think about those from Seattle. The only bands we ever really thought about being from Seattle were some cover bands that would play some of the bars in Ellensburg. Right. And we'd go to big arena concerts over there. Like the first concert I went to like when I was a junior high school, like 79, was like, yes, like in the round. That was pretty amazing. Show. Okay. I was like, at the time I was like a total like prog rock. Uh, it's still a couple of years more till I start getting punk and new wave and stuff and realize that prog rock was cool, but it was a whole lot more music. You know, when people like, like prog rock music, there's nothing except for 
yes, King Crimson and maybe Emerson Lake Palmer. <laughs> right. Yeah, by, uh, by the time started we definitely you know everyone was listening to all sorts of different uh music from the time and older stuff and you know we had expanded our horizons a lot so yeah we go we were saw rush um the one smaller show that we went to at the show box which is a pretty big, famous like uh venue for a lot, a lot of the bands like in the early 80s like that would come through town was uh, King Crimson. They played the show box. A lot of the new wave punk bands played there too. Mm. I had no idea until later on. That was like the only show. This was like the reformed King Crimson with uh, Adrian Ballou. Right. Like in 1981. So, but then after the band started, we kind of like, oh, there's some other stuff going on over in Seattle. And there's a lot of bands that we have albums that are playing over there. So we'd start driving over there, you know, just to come back after the show. For like you know, I saw who did I see. I there's some soul asylum over there. Um, the central a lot. Who else? Uh, I think I went to Dinosaur Junior one time. Did you uh, guys? Did else? you guys drive up I, there to play I, yourselves? Did Did you start driving? Yeah, finally, we finally we did, but we never did. So we didn't even play live until uh, what was the first show? Yeah, until about a year after we got together the summer '86, we went over and played in Olympia. Mm-hmm. That was the first real show we did was uh, Desco in Olympia. And they were like, you know, like 30, 40 people. A lot of people I met there later from bands. Like, I remember I think I met uh, Buzz from Melvin's there. And of course, Calvin Johnson. That was like, he was instrumental in helping us a lot and playing shows with Beat Happening. We did that a lot. So we played a couple shows in Olympia. And it wasn't until a few months later we played a first show in Seattle. And yeah, we probably played in Seattle maybe once or twice a year we didn't play there too much so we were kind of mysterious by the time the you know kind of grunge type music scene got going in the later 80s we were kind of mysterious because like who are these guys they're on sst records and from ellensburg what the hell you know it's like so people would be pretty curious about seeing what we because we wouldn't play in seattle very much you know uh, we, we played around too. We, you know, we did a lot of shows of beat happening around the area and girl trouble. That was like we did this thing called the Screaming Trouble Happening, with like all three <laughs> bands, and we like played Bellingham and Olympia. And I think we played Ellensburg with that too, didn't we? Maybe I know we played that with Beat Happening. What about after so, the yeah, SST we, day, debut came out? The even if and especially when did you start touring more after that? Yeah, see, that was when we got hooked up with SST. They also had global which was their booking agency and they had all the connections from like black flag touring from the early 80s so we got a lot of good shows and we get paid you know two or three hundred bucks maybe a little more sometimes but we'd actually get paid that much you know we wouldn't like go to the show and like oh we don't have money like i think it was one or two times we were working with global that we didn't maybe get paid but that was like a godsend because i know that's probably a problem back then for a lot of bands is like you know people saying they're going to pay you and then no one shows up right but people but they would pay us because they wanted to get all the other bands you know that were on sst so yeah we did we we, we settled into doing usually like one or two tours a year like spring and fall and then a couple of years in a row like 89 and 90 we went to a europe and europe was really good because we had like you know SST was pretty hot for being a label, and people got a lot more people consistently coming to shows in Europe, especially yeah. in Germany. We didn't go to England much till later on, but uh, didn't do England hardly at all until like the 90s. But uh, Did you get packaged up with other SST bands? We didn't in Europe. We did some, you know, we did in the U.S. We did a lot of touring with uh, Firehose. Mm-hmm. 
for instance, and played with some other SST bands, especially in California. We did, I can't remember who else we played with, but I'm sure we played with, you know, um, you know, we ended up playing with a lot of other bands that were on SCIS, like uh, Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and stuff like that. We did play, I guess we played several shows with Dinosaur Jr. Early on, I guess they were on SST. We played with them in Massachusetts. Doss Diamond? No, and Doss Diamond, yeah, we ended up, uh, we didn't play with them until after SST, but they, they opened up, uh, I think that was, I can't remember which tour it was. It was one, of, I think it was after we were on Epic. We had them open for us on one of our tours we did. That was cool. I really liked them a lot. They were my favorite little bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did play with, you know, a lot of different bands. And I guess we, we played with the Meat Puppets when we were still on SST, and they were, um, depending on who, especially like stuff coming through the Northwest. Usually we didn't do two until uh, we got an epic. Mostly we were doing, you know, either doing tours ourselves or we'd hook up, you know, play one or two shows here and there with different bands. Right. Was there ever any talk about clairvoyance being reissued on SST? For some reason, no. I don't know why that never happened. I don't know. They, I, I'm not really sure why it should. Maybe that wasn't. But I mean, you know, I, I guess it was sort of partially owned by Velvetone and partially by us. And it never really had. I don't even know if we actually had a contract on that. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it ended up coming out on CD. It was sort of a half bootleg. I think Lanigan got them to do it, but um, that was like what, about 15 years ago, I think. It came out on CD, which, you know, it was good because at least more people can hear it that way. Because when it's just on vinyl, it's harder for people to, yeah. to hear. I have to ask you about the purple outside. Uh, oh yeah, cool. that you did in 1990. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that ended up being like everybody. We 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 got uh, and finished. Yeah, we finished that uh, bus factory, and that the year before, 1989. Everyone was kind of like, "Well, what are we going to do next? Well, why don't we all do solo albums?" I don't know why Mark Pickerel didn't do it. And I was thinking about that a while back because I was reading an interview somewhere with him where it was saying like the reason the one of the reasons he quit the band, the Screaming Trees, was because he wanted to write and sing. And I never even, I never had any, apparently talked to Lanning about it. Lanning was like, I don't know. <laughs> I never heard of that at the time. You know, he does that now. He's been doing that for years, like making records and singing and playing guitar and stuff. But uh, he didn't, no, never came out that he was going to do one. But we were all going to do one at SST. That was the original idea. Like, uh-huh. I think Mark talked to Ian about it. And uh, Just like Kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the idea, yeah. yeah. That was the idea. So do like this. Everyone do their own solo records. But then Lanigan, he had moved to Seattle that year, and he got hooked up with Sub Pop. So his ended up coming out in Sub Pop. And then Van and mine were on uh, New Alliance, which is like affiliated with SST. I think it was the Minutemen that started that label, or Mike Watt, I believe. You know, I was writing tons of psychedelic kind of stuff at the time. And, of course, by the time the Screaming Trees got to it, it wasn't quite a psychedelic. So I was like, well, I'm going to do like full-on you know, massively psychedelic album. But interesting enough that um, in the fall of 88, we went in the studio um, before we did Buzz Factory and recorded the record that was Buzz Factory, but it had a lot more songs on it and didn't have some of the songs on it. With uh, Donna, Thresh would replace Van. The Van quit in 1988 for about several months. Okay. Because he had a, he'd had a son and had to get married and had like about three jobs because we weren't making any money. Not that we made much money later, but we, at least, you know, 
<clears throat> at the time he made no money at all. So he had to he had to work and support his kid. And Donna Dress, she was in this band Danger Mouse. Um, right. Yeah. Later she came back Dress. She uh, played bass for us on that tour, and she also came in Los Angeles. We went to Los Angeles, a studio called Spinhead, and we, that was going to be our next record after Invisible Anner. Was and a lot of the songs were ended up redone by me later, and ended up on the Purple Outside record. Probably about most of those songs were recorded by the Screaming Trees and sort of lost i don't have a tape of them anymore i don't know if they exist or not i thought they were completely lost but a while back somebody uh was talking about them doing a com- compilation for spinhead studios right. which is uh guy phil newman who he passed away a few years ago he was in that band painted willie yeah yeah uh the sst and they he had the studio spinhead and some other bands uh recorded there i think sonic youth recorded some stuff there they did um, yeah yeah, yeah, they had a they put out an album with us. But ours, we went down there one time, like in the mid '90s, and I was like, "You got the, you know, uh, tapes of that stuff?" So I was like, "No, we recorded over them or something." But uh, yeah, it was actually Dave Markey uh, was I like, see him on Facebook, and he like sent me a message or something. Like, yeah, we're thinking about doing a, a Spinhead compilation of stuff that was recorded Spinhead. And he sent me a couple of tracks that I thought were completely lost. Oh wow! So maybe they still exist. I don't know find out this was about a year ago but wow that would be anyway um, <laughs> yeah because yeah and about half it was a double record about half of the song were the screaming trees doing the stuff in the purple outside album oh wow which, i don't know it sounded that much different because that's like guitar and all of it and mm-hmm. except for you know mark's singing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it was, i mean it's it's not that much more psychedelic than, than some of the uh screaming tree stuff but it's definitely you know that was, you know, my idea was I wanted to make the most psychedelic record I possibly could. So <laughs> I just went, you know, I did the same way with uh, at Velvetone. I can't remember Steve worked on it. We had mostly, I think it was Rod Doak, who was our sound guy and later our tour manager for a while. He uh, is from Allensburg, his friend of ours, and worked with us a lot. He he did the engineering on a lot of it, I think, if I remember right. Okay. And Brother Patrick played drums. And I went and overdubbed the bass and everything, you know, and never, all the other stuff. And, um, so it's basically two people playing on everything. Like Brother Pat playing drums on everything and he playing everything else. Patrick's younger and, than uh, Ben? Yeah, he's like about, well, he, he was born, I was born in 62, he was born in 72, so he's 10 years younger. We got so many kids, and he's only the middle, too. Like, we got oh, kids wow. 20 years. <laughs> like, the youngest kids, they're like, uh, well, they're not kids anymore, like almost uh, Joey and Dylan. Who must be how old are they? Like thirty-eight or forty or something like that. I don't know. It's a big family. Yeah, seven kids total. Like I'm the oldest, and Dan's the second oldest. So. Did they all work in the video store too? Yeah, at some point, some of them were littler. I mean, like you know, um, like uh, Joey Dillon. We had kind of it was almost like two different families of kids. Joey Dillon and Ava were like the littler kids, and mm-hmm. then the other kids, Patrick, Su- Susie, our sister, and Dan and I were like the kind of older kids so like two sets and i i like help take care of the littler kids when i was like in high school and right out of high school right. so, which helped a lot when i had my own daughter like in the 90s and she was a baby so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now tell me about the uh yeah. the more re- recent solo stuff you've done yeah right okay well um it's kind of a throwback to the to the whole purple outside vibe i would say well, yeah, it's just because that's you know, as I'm doing what I want to and not caring about what you know, I just want to make stuff I like, 
not caring about what it's going to sound like if the screaming trees do it, you know, because at some point, you know, probably after we've been together two or three years, I was kind of, you know, definitely trying to move towards like, you know, what kind of stuff, you know, I'm going to think of Mark singing the song because he's probably going to sing the song if he likes it. And, you know, what's it going to be like with the screaming trees. But uh, the last show we played was like 2000. And I spent a long time really not doing a lot. I was, we'd moved to this little tiny town from, well, I was living in New York at the time. That's one reason the band ended up just really kind of petering out was because a lot after, after we did the Law of Palooza and Dust came out, everyone was living like thousands of miles apart. Landing goes down in Los Angeles and Van right. Barrett was still in Seattle, but I was living in New York. And after we did that last show in 2000, the Experience Music Project, my wife and I and our daughter moved uh, to San Angelo, Texas, which is where I live now. I've been here since 2001. And it's really isolated in the middle of nowhere. It's like a, not a small town. It's about 100,000 people. But there's no freeway. It's like right in the middle of Texas and well, nothing out here really except yeah. for the town. And I spent years just, you know, working on how to get taking care of my daughter and you know worked like had a paper route to make money like to, you know because we we didn't really make enough money to make a living right. after the screaming trees while we were in the band in, on epic we basically didn't have any time to do anything else so we managed to borrow enough money either from our managers or sometimes we got a few royalties here and there we managed to like not have to work at least until uh later yeah, you know, after the band was kind of petering out, but so I did that. I, it was kind of fun actually driving around this town, like not out in the country, just in the town, like in the middle of the night, um, listening to music, delivering, throwing papers in people's yards. Like <laughs> that's how you do it. Because like when I was in Ellensburg, I had newspaper route right before the band started, and you know, it was like out in the country. So that was kind of like uh, I spent years doing that though. Um, Beats punching a clock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I was doing a little bit of music still, but I was still kind of like, this was like when computers were kind of moving into music, you know. And right. I, I had moved on from four-track cassette to, uh, I got like a digital uh, recorder. It was like made by Zoom or something. And it was kind of, it was a little different. And I wasn't really making stuff that sounded like it was probably, you know, quality enough to go out on an album, you know, maybe a cassette or something. But so anyway, um, and also the internet really wasn't, quite developed enough to like be putting your stuff out online you know i was still making cds and maybe selling a few of those but having a website or something but uh it wasn't like it is nowadays where you throw your stuff digitally on there and you can do whatever you want to you know and uh so it wasn't until about 2008 where i got a little extra money i got a new computer and we got a you know, digital body workshop so i ended up getting uh I never have used Pro Tools. I always used one that was originally called Sonar Cakewalk. It was made by a company that's like, it was one of the earliest Cakewalk was the earliest digital workshop things from the 90s. Mm-hmm. But uh, I still use that nowadays. I've never have moved on to Pro Tools. It's not really that much different. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. Just, you know. But uh, anyway, so suddenly I realized, well, geez, this is like actually sounding good. I could actually put stuff out. And now they have, you know, that was like, about 2010 was when I first put it out. The first album was with Micro.Gnome, which I put out under the band name Micro.Gnome, even though it was just me. Right. I later realized, well, people want people to know who I am. Maybe it's just my name. So, so I when I re-released that, I put it out. Just like Gary Lee Connor, the album is called The Micro.Gnome. Mm-hmm. So that came out. I recorded it in 2008 and 9, 
and it came out in 2010 uh, digitally. There was a few CD on demand things, I think, you know. This was like sort of the earlier days of the internet, digital music stuff. And um, I think at the time I was, I was using Reverb Nation. This is, I don't know if Bandcamp had started up yet, but I didn't discover Bandcamp until a few years later, which I think was pretty cool. So this record, the Micro.Gnome, this is actually um, coming out on vinyl, finally, uh, in January on the same label that I released my last record, Unicorn Curry. So I've done, in the last 10 years, I've done three albums. Wow. Uh, Micro.Gnome, uh, in 2000, what was it, released in 2015 or 16, was one called Ether Trippers. that Van, um, my brother, had a label, I think he still got it, called Strange Earth Records, and he put that out on there, and they, they did vinyl on that. That was cool, so actually having the record come out on vinyl. And then uh, the newest records came out about a year ago, uh, it was called Unicorn Curry, and that came out on... Uh, vinyl on this label, Vincibus Eruptum Records in Italy. I just got hooked up on Facebook because it was like, I was, I had the record out on Bandcamp and uh, I was going to try to use this place to do vinyl. It was a, a vinyl on demand place called Diggers Factory from France. And you had to get pre orders and stuff. Didn't get enough pre orders. I was kind of disheartened. It's like, well, I guess it won't come out on vinyl. Then, like, just like a couple of days later, I get this email from this guy in Italy. It's like, geez like to put out your record on vinyl and i was like you know kind of wary at first but you know he did it and it's great and it's on vinyl and now he's going to put out the micro.gnome record on vinyl oh good and i also had another label put out a cd of it called uh, forbidden place records they put out the cd of unicorn curry and in the meantime also i got cassettes out in this, uh, i actually worked with these guys several years ago on one of my demo records that i did it was a double cassette on solid seven records even though they just do cassettes they don't do that you know the guy makes them himself he like makes like 30 or 50 cassettes right. mostly sells out of them so that's kind of interesting to have and he put the micro.gnome record out recently on cassette and the unicorn curry so i got three cassettes it's confusing all the formats of where they're coming out and stuff <laughs> well where should so people basically go i've got to your band camp okay, page well yeah yeah it's, it's Bandcamp gary lee connor just go to Bandcamp, find gary lee connor it's got there's all sorts of stuff on there. I've got the three albums, and then also I have two records of demos spanning from like the mid '80s all the way to right before I started doing uh, the stuff I've released now. It's probably about 2007. Right. So um, called the Under the Weeping Willow Tree. There's two ver two uh, volumes. Two volumes of yeah. it. Yeah. There's like 47 songs on each one. So there's a ton of stuff. You know, they're real cheap too. Like you can either. Well, you can and also you can listen to everything. I got free streaming on this, so if you want to go to the website, as long as you're on the website, you can listen to whatever you want for as long as you want. So those are those two demo albums are on there, and then there's also some other things that are like free downloads. Like uh, there's the Purple Outside you can get for free download there because I was I didn't want to charge for it because like I don't I haven't had contact with people for years. I thought well let's do it for free, and you know people can download it if they want yep. and also uh, my sub pop single that came out in 1999 a singles called grasshoppers daydream that's on there mm -hmm. that's an interesting one because it's got like josh home from queens of the stone age playing guitar on it and uh mark pickerel playing drums and my brother pat playing bass yeah there's a, so a lot of stuff on there you can download for free and you can listen to everything for free uh whenever, whenever you want to so and are, are you working on some new <laughs> stuff 
Yeah, I'm just I just got a new computer. I finally got after like 11 years a new because the other one was getting you know I, when I got a new computer for uh, audio stuff at the time in 2008 I guess it was I got you know as state of the art as I could but it's been 11 years right. so <laughs> it was starting to get mixing Unicorn Curry was going I had to like do get kind of creative like you know. You know, I used that many tracks, you know, with all the stuff, it was kind of slow. I was like, I was realizing I had to do some workarounds and stuff. But I just uh, managed to get a new computer, and I've just got it all going. I'm getting ready. I guess I've got a bunch of songs written. I just got to record them. So right on. I thought we're record their new stuff. So. Right on. Gary Lee, thanks so much right. for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. Cool. There you go. What a great guy. Thanks, Gary Lee. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great having him on and uh, some really interesting stuff in there. Uh, so I, I think I read this somewhere, but like, I don't think I knew, I, I think I knew this going into the interview, but this album was originally sp just supposed to be a demo. And yeah. I think he says in the interview, they'd only been a band like two weeks when they recorded this. Yeah, that's crazy. They hadn't even really played the songs at all. Like they, these were all demos, you know. That's wild, and and you say it, they sound pretty fully formed at this point. Yep. How wild is it that they like hook up with Steve Fisk of all people at a studio in, in, in their hometown? Yeah. Is it is it Ellensburg? Ellensburg, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Recorded with Steve Fisk at Creative Fire Studios. Yep. And Steve Fisk was the hookup through Ray Farrell to get him onto SST, which is cool. Yeah. Also mentioned, of course, that, you know, the next Screaming Trees record that we're going to get to is SST 132, even if and especially when. But after Other Worlds, they put out that LP Clairvoyance, on, which was on the Velvetone label as well. Yeah, it's really good, too. I, I wish that would have got reissued through SST because it's, it's good. But... Um, the interesting thing about this one is it came out in 1988. So this on SST, I mean, so uh, originally 1986 on Velvetone on cassette only. Uh, but this the uh, SST reissue came out after, even though we're not going to get to even if and especially when for, I don't know what you said, 30 more episodes or so. Uh, this actually came out after that one. Yeah, they're they're not that different in sound, though. Like even even if is definitely progressed, but I I would say like their big change, Screaming Trees, their big first change in terms of sound was really on Buzz Factory for me. Yeah, I mean this album, Other Worlds, is cool for me because that song Barrier, like in addition to Nearly Lost You from the single soundtrack and from Sweet Oblivion, the other I bet you. The other song that people hear first from Screaming Trees, if it's not that one, is probably Barriers off of the SST anthology as well. Yeah, is it the first track on there? Yeah, and that's yeah. that's why I like those little, the, the opening chords in that song. Um, and when I think of the anthology record, like it's pretty cohesive in terms of all kind of sounding like this era of Screaming Trees for sure. An interesting thing I noticed is, so this came out on 12-inch EP, CD, and cassette on SST. And uh, 
they did it on green wax, which I think might be our first. Like, I know SST really got into variants later on for collectors, but I, I don't know if we've seen any colored wax before this. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they re-released some of the singles that we've been through on colored. Like, I think 8 Miles High, you can get a variant in that on colored wax, but maybe not as an original press. Yeah, this, I think, came out in 1988 on green wax. Yeah. And another cool thing I saw, speaking of that Screaming Trees Facebook page, is there was a photo on there like two days ago of Van Connor and Mark Pickerel at Albright Studio in Ellensburg, like where this was recorded. But like currently, they were there. Oh, I wonder what they're doing. <laughs> Hopefully recording something. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, I think it doesn't sound like at least as far as I could tell from looking up on stuff that there's animosity between the members. Maybe there is. I know that there is that one famous piece of footage of screaming trees on David Letterman. And it happened like, I think like Mark Lanigan has got a black eye cause they were yeah. in a fist fight. Remember that? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was them that were in a fist fight or if it was like he had just been in a fist fight. Oh, okay. Maybe you're right there. I hope it wasn't the band. Yeah. Oh, I hope I didn't start a Twitter feud by saying that. <laughs> I probably did. But um, it's, I don't know. I, I just get pretty thrilled every time we have someone on who is actually there and talks about it. I mean, Gary Lee is a pretty humble dude, uh, but he has a distinctive sound. His playing on all the, all of the Screaming Trees records um, I've always really enjoyed on their on their major label records, though, where they've got some even better production, though. He's definitely just like ripping it up. And uh, yeah, you can start to see he's very, very like early on in his guitar playing career on this record. But you can see hints about what he will turn into later on. Yeah. And I mean, you can tell he wrote these songs too. Like even if you listen to that purple outside record, it totally sounds like a screaming trees album. And, oh. and apparently could may, could have been. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I don't know. Would you like to get into the tracks then? Yeah, let's do it. History lesson part two. All right. So we got, it's a six song EP, a good intro to the band. And it starts off with the track. Like I said, which is, you know, a psychedelic tune, slide guitar, and it's already got that, what you could almost say is like signature Screaming Trees haunting background vocals, like on the first track. Yeah. I, I, maybe it's the slide guitar, but I was thinking of the Gun Club when I heard that song. It really reminded me of this song that they have called Fire Spirit. Yep. I hear that. Yeah. I don't know. Cool. It, it's cool that Ginn reissued this. Like he was clearly a fan of this EP and was, that was his reasoning, I think for wanting to do it. Yeah. I mean, he must've chosen this over clairvoyance for some reason. Yeah. Uh, next track is pictures in my mind, which has got the garage organ in full effect. Right. But is it an organ or is it a synth on an organ setting? 
So I, I had the same question, but more so on the next track. I was like, hey, what? They got a synthesizer going. I go, oh, no, it's an organ on the song The Turning. But you might be right. Yeah. Uh, it does say, though, on the back of the jacket for these two songs, pictures in my mind and The Turning with an asterisk, Steve Fisk on, quote, organ, unquote. Yeah. This uh, pictures in my mind really sounds like a lot of those 60s bands like the harder ones like the seeds or something like that mm -hmm. i love the way that they go to double time on the snare during the chorus yeah really cool oh yeah it's got like a a garage psych pebbles vibe for sure and it's good yeah the turning is uh an upbeat kind of driving psych number i like the bass on it the bass is coming yeah. through on this one and uh, i'm digging it that's what I put. This was a standout for me. I, I like the bass, how it's up an octave higher in the first few bars, and then it kind of goes down. They were definitely students of 60s bands. Uh, I like the version of this song that's on Clairvoyance a little bit more. I think it's a re-recording on Clairvoyance. It, it sound, it's either that or it's remixed, but I'm pretty sure the solo sections are different. L either way, the solo sections on both versions are good. Um, Steve does a little organ thing, and then Gary Gary does a little ripping solo that's really good. Yep. Then the, the next track is Other Worlds, which is another driving psych tune that uh, fits well following the turning, for sure. Like, um, they got a similar vibe back-to-back -back for me. Yeah, this is the B-side that we're on now. Other Worlds is, is cool. Uh, I love the backwards guitar at the beginning, and then the, it goes into, it just does this big snare crack. Yeah. And then there's a really fuzzed out solo, and there's some psychedelic echo on the vocals. They're kind of pulling out all of the bag of tricks like from the <laughs> 60s bands, you know? Oh, for sure. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. It, it does, um, it reinforces, though, like when you watch that movie Hype, and even the, uh, oh gosh, what's that uh, documentary series? I've mentioned it before. I think it's like The Origins of Metal or something like that. Oh, the Canadian one. Yeah, with Sam uh, Dunn. Sam Dunn, yeah. yeah. Um, Metal Evolution? Yeah, that's the one. Metal Evolu Evolution. And there is a grunge episode. And the question is, you know, is grunge metal? Blah, blah, blah. But um, it's interesting in that episode starts talking about the 60s garage roots like the sonics and stuff in seattle and uh dave grohl's documentary series in that episode on seattle goes even further into that and i mean it's just super clear in a really good way too that they're obviously heavily influenced by that era giving it a modern spin the kingsman man yeah for sure seattle band yeah Louis Louie. Yeah. Did you did you see the Sonics when they came through a couple of years ago, Canada? Maybe they only no. played the one spot here. Yeah, no, I didn't see them. It was insane you... to see like people as old as your, well, I guess as old as my dad or whatever, just ripping it up. And then there were <laughs> uh, dudes from the Bomboras and and uh, the Finks playing uh, keys and guitar in there. It was just insane, man. Right on. The Sonics. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that documentary by them or about them, I should say. Yeah. I don't know if that'll ever find its way to DVD. Probably after two years of making it to the uh, festival circuit. Yeah, probably. 
seems to be the way it goes now. Yeah. Where's that pill documentary brand? I don't know, man. I check out I check out the website like every couple of weeks. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Um, next track, Barriers. As I mentioned, I, I think that a lot of people hear the Screaming Trees, like the old Screaming Trees, for the first time with this song because it's the first track off the anthology. Great song, though, for me because I know it so well from that place. Yeah, I really like this one. Uh, cool extended backwards solo. Uh, this one was actually making me think of a lot of 90s Canadian rock bands. Like what? I don't know. I was trying to think of who. Like maybe Rusty or something like that. Hmm. I don't know what it was about it, but I mean, a lot of those bands were influenced by, by grunge bands. Oh, yeah. So it makes sense. Man, I haven't listened to Rusty for well over 10 years. Maybe even 20. All right. The last track then, Now Your Mind is Next to Mine. Yeah, speaking of Canadian bands, this one, for some reason, was making me think of a young Canadian song. Oh, like you which one? I don't remember. There was something about it. Like one of the riffs is the same. Oh, no. Yeah. That didn't that didn't trigger for me, but I like the reference. I thought yeah. you were going to reference the Throbin' Hoods again. <laughs> <laughs> For just trying to get sneak in all the obscure Canadian bands. Yeah. Well, well Screaming all, Trees are almost Canadian, right? Yeah. This is, yeah. And I mean, our American listeners love that too, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one, I think the effect pedal that they're using is probably a phaser. And they're trying to make it sound like a, almost like a sitar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to But it works, whatever it is. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, if it's a synth playing organ and they're using a phaser to sound like a sitar, you definitely have people like trying to sound like a, you know, well, I should say you definitely have people heavily influenced by the 60s sound trying to get something like that sound, but with the tools that they have at their disposal. And as a result, they kind of come up with their own sound. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Kind of like DC3. Very true. Yep. Very true. I think uh, we mentioned the artwork in the interview, but this was this is a cut and paste job that I think he says Mark Pickerel did. And it's a, it's a Christmas card, which totally makes sense. The front image there with, uh, with Gary Lee, like kneeling yeah. down in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. He's got a, uh, what kind of Gibson is that? Is that an Explorer or a Firebird? That looks like a Firebird. It's not an Explorer, that's for sure. Oh, oh is Explorer like the one that the Edge from U2 uses? Uh, Papa Hett uses a, uses an Explorer. Who's James that? Hat, James Hetfield. Papa Hett? Yeah. <laughs> oh, moving on. Uh, I like Van. He's got, um, his base, um, it looks like, it's hard to tell what kind of base that is. Almost looks like an Ibanez or something. Looks like it, yeah. Playing with a pick, love that. And then uh, look at Lanigan. When you look at him standing there at the mic, what does that look like to you? Like That looks like grunge, doesn't it? Well, he's flying the flannel, so that helps. 
behind the flannel. His elbows are blown out. Yeah. And uh, it just looks like what everyone thought that grunge looked like in the 90s, for sure. Minus the gnarly drum riser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Built out of two by fours and painted black. Yeah. It's a good one. The back cover has got um, a picture of the band. It looks like they're busting up over a joke in uh, like a back room. Looks like there's graffiti on the back walls there. Do you see any slovenly Peter graffiti? <laughs> Should I? I can't. <laughs> Wishful thinking, I guess. Yeah. Not like in the uh, We Got Power book. Yeah. Yeah. Nice obscure, a... nice obscure reference <laughs> for the day. That's a far out lampshade. Yeah. Well, not for that era though. True. Yeah. I, with the chain and everything, that's pretty common back then. Yeah. Um, I've only got the CD, so pretty boring for me. Um, and then the back, it just talks about how the, uh, all the songs are written and produced by Screaming Trees and then, but produced by Screaming Trees and Steve Fisk, of course, recorded in 85 at it says it's recorded in 85 at velvetone and i had it though and you actually mentioned a different studio i had it recorded at creative fire studios why do i have that name yeah i'm looking at the original cassette here on discogs and it says at velvetone oh okay the the picture that they posted on facebook i i checked to make sure it was the same studio and they're standing out front of it out front of the studio and the the address is the same one that's i think on the back of this record there's a p.o box on the back of this record where did i see an address i compared the addresses somewhere yeah i wish i had a different version like i wish i had the vinyl on this one i think it would be good on record it's good on disc though it's a good little ep it does say on the back that mark pickroll did the the cover and then back cover photo by Matt Varnum. Mm -hmm. And that is it. Good little EP. Good intro to Screaming Trees. Big fan of the band. Big fan of all the releases and uh, all of their phases. Really looking forward to getting into more of them. Do you think that um, that light fixture behind them in the picture is the invisible <laughs> lantern? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> but I'm like, oh God, don't do the invisible lantern reference. First, first of all, it's a light fixture, not a lantern. Second of uh, all, it's not invisible. Moving on. Oh for 2. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Oh for 2, another theory shot to shit. Yeah. But what was the good pun earlier on that you uh, you laid on me? What was that one? Uh, pun intended. You got the you got the Mike Watt in under the wire. <laughs> oh my god, that's brutal. Time to go to the ballot result. Ballot result. All right. So for me, I, I kind of hit on it a couple of times. Barriers is the one that sticks out for me. That's more due to familiarity, though. I think that if I were to guess, you'd probably throw your weight behind the turning. Am I right? Uh, yeah, but honestly, I like all of these songs. They're all really good. And uh, I think maybe, it, again, to me, uh, Screaming Trees are almost Canadian. They're like half Canadian. 
<laughs> you know? Because they're from Seattle? Well, they're from Ellensburg. It's almost like a Canadian small town when I think when I picture it in my mind. Okay. <laughs> so they're almost Canadian because of your imagination. Right. <laughs> but this song Barriers almost maybe that's why I was thinking of of like Canadian bands because Mark Lanigan almost sounds Canadian on it. Maybe, maybe he's going something, something barriers <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's too good well you you pick and the insanity barriers okay good it's a good one yeah and i've got a super soft spot for that one nice i'm so pumped that we're getting into the trees you know it's interesting like i remember when we started off this show you know a hundred episodes ago or whatever and we were trying to you know just say like, look, obviously these first 20 out, first 20 releases are the amazing ones, but don't worry, there's good stuff. And now look at us in the first five episodes of the hundreds or whatever. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty good stuff. Every single one of them so far, there's a lot more to go, man. When people talk about SST, like in general terms, do you think the screaming trees are in that are listed? Never. Never, hey? No. When they're like, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, they'll throw Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Junior J- Junior in there. You know, Black Flag, obviously. Yeah, the trees are never mentioned. They got four releases on here. Great band. They had a lot of success. Yeah. It's, it's weird. They definitely get glossed over. I think so, too. Good one. I'm looking forward to some more trees. And I'm also, like, as I was getting ready for this episode, I pulled out a stack of Screaming Trees side projects that I want to re-listen to as well. I listened to all of them. And I listened to uh, Clairvoyance quite a bit too. Yeah, that's a good one. I was actually planning to kind of listen to that before the next one, but you know. You still can. It's very, very brand of you to jump ahead. <laughs> Speaking of jumping ahead, what's next week, Ryan? SST 106, the Blast LP, it's in my blood. Yeah. We've got a special guest, Brand. Yeah, Dave Cooper, bass player extraordinaire from Blast, is going to be on the podcast. It's a great interview. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.